I uh, slipped Alan a five and asked him if I could introduce our speaker uh, for the week this morning in these morning lectures, the Reverend Charles Dennison, who is the pastor of Grace OPC in Swickley, Pennsylvania. Um, I did that because I wanted to give uh, Charlie a good launch into our company. I don't know how many of you know him, although uh, he seems to have brought uh, quite, a, quite an entourage of friends uh, along and family, and I'm glad for that. I first met Pastor Dennison in 1970 or 71, I don't exactly remember which, while I was at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. He was finishing up his work on a Master of Divinity degree there, graduated in 1971. Uh, before that, he had done his undergraduate work in Geneva College uh, near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, graduating in 1967, and then he just told me this morning, I guess I either forgot or didn't know that he's also picked up a master's degree from Duquesne uh, in 1984. Now, that should satisfy all of you who uh, like academic credentials. Um, but I also wanted to uh, just say a personal word or two in introducing Charlie to you that I hope will be encouraging as well and uh, set us up for his presentation. Uh, since meeting Charlie, although he's one of those friends that I've only crossed paths with from time to time over the intervening years since we left Philadelphia, uh, has been a delightful friend. I remember uh, he and Ginger inviting Sherry and I down to uh, his first pastorate in southern New Jersey uh, shortly after he had arrived there, and what a wonderful time of warm hospitality and friendship we enjoyed. And then since that time, usually at GAs, we uh, managed to... Uh, uh, cross paths and swap a few stories along the way. Uh, our friendship, uh, and this is important to realize, our friendship proves that men of various opinions and views uh, can get along well as long as they both like Clint Eastwood movies and <laughs> remember with reverence the genius of Sam Peckinpah. Um, even if some of us do it as a matter of principle and others as a matter of cheap thrills. <laughs> Uh, but more seriously, uh, Charlie, for me, has personified the strength that has arisen in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church through the breadth of its appreciation for and use of the various streams of Reformed confessional tradition. Charlie likes to think that he breathes the sweet Dutch atmosphere of Gerhardus Voss and Hermann Ritterboss, and the appreciation of the covenant and of the unfolding history of redemption enriches his whole thought and ministry. That emphasis also directs some of his particular distinctive views and concerns. On the other hand, my pulse tends to quicken at the stirring challenges of a Rutherford or of a Cromwellian Puritan divine, or perhaps a Scottish Covenanter. That tradition's emphasis upon the crown rights of King Jesus have meant a great deal to my thinking, to my ministry. It also gives particular direction to my concerns and views that may be distinctive. So Charlie and I and others like us disagree sometimes very strongly on some of the issues that are currently under discussion within the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and the Reformed Church at large. But what to me is more significant is that against that background of divergence, there's also a deep appreciation and love for most of the doctrines of the Reformed faith which we hold together with unanimity. We'll still argue over which side gets Warfield and Van Til and even Machen and Murray. And I'm sure that that unanimity of commitment to the Reformed faith as it's expressed in our great confession will guarantee that one time or another this side of Jordan or the other will even solve the questions of difference and difficulty. In the meantime, we discuss, sometimes even debate, but I've appreciated, Charlie, that our discussion and debate has always been carried on with great patience and with genuine good humor. And the disagreements so far are also held in a spirit of warm Christian grace and a healthy sense of proportion. I think Charlie has that sense of grace and proportion in part because of the kind of historian that he is. So I thank you for that and for the opportunity to say that to you in the presence of this company. With respect to the meetings that are before us now, though, let me say just one more word before I ask him to come up here. Charlie is a historian. He's a historian by avocation, even though we all know that he rakes in major bucks from the Orthodox Presbyterian Church <laughs> as the official OPC historian. Oh, you didn't know that? Well, now you do. You can ask him about it later. 
This week he will sketch for us the history of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, some of the things that led up to its founding and its history up to date. I hope this subject will stir you and challenge you and edify you uh, as I expect it to me, as well as inform you, maybe teach you some things you never knew about Orthodox Presbyterian Church history. Ever since I heard the tape of his lecture on Machen's life, which he delivered in 1986 at the semi-centennial celebration of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, I've urged in one way or another the committee of this camp to think about having him come. And the fact that this invitation has now been issued and taken up is a, is a personal delight to me. Um, when I was sick this past week, some of the people in the church said, well, you're not going to go to family camp then, are you? And I thought, no way I'm going to miss this one if I have to take my respirator along with me. Last evening, Dr. Peterson spoke about how the reformed Christian historian should perform his particular educational task. Charlie, I think, will exemplify that kind of work for us. There's a problem with church history, and those of you who studied a little church history probably know this. On the one hand, there's a temptation by its friends to isolate it from secular history, by which we sort of think of real history. And then we wonder what to do with it. Sometimes it becomes a kind of a, uh, an exercise in idealistic self-praise. On the other hand, sometimes people look at church history as being simply a reflex of secular history. So it can be debunked and then criticized mercilessly and finally safely ignored. But for Charlie, as a Christian and as a historian, there's only one history. It's the history of God's mighty acts among his people in the world of men. It began in Genesis, and so far it has continued to 1990. There's a special problem for us as we study modern church history. Most of us as Americans, what we know about uh, American history sort of ends around the Civil War, and we know that there's been 100-plus years since then, but we're not quite sure what happened between uh, 1870 and 1960, perhaps. Uh, and that creates a problem for understanding what was going on in the church during that period of time. Charlie will ask, and I think answer for us by God's grace, the question, what was God doing in American church history during that period of time? And what God has been doing for us in particular as members of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. So it's a great personal privilege and uh, joy for me to be able to welcome uh, Charlie Dennison and uh, to commend him to you. I hope you will uh, give him your most careful attention, Charlie. to uh, reality and, uh, <laughs> and something that's really worth considering. Let's uh, think about a couple of verses at the opening of Psalm 90. I just want to place those in front of you this morning as we begin. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or thou didst give birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. And from our secondary standards, I'd like to put before you just a brief statement from chapter 3. Not do that. <laughs> well, let's. Uh, I can lean. The passage was Psalm 90, verses 1 and 2. Okay. <laughs> and this is from chapter 3 in the uh, Confession of Faith. God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass.
despite the introduction I received and uh, paraphrasing a biblical writer, I am not a church historian nor the son of a church historian. I am a rank amateur. I might be the highest paid rank amateur. but a rank amateur nevertheless. Now I say that to you for a couple of reasons. I think we are desperately in need of honesty, straightforwardness, especially in this day and age when it comes to ecclesiastical matters. Our time is increasingly becoming characterized by what might be called an epidemic of ecclesiastical anonymity. That means that you camouflage as best as you can your ecclesiastical credentials. You don't let people know just how specialized you are when it comes to the matters of the faith. When we turn to Presbyterian concerns, there is a habit of mind increasingly that we pass ourselves off as generic Presbyterians. Now, unfortunately, that's something that even infects Orthodox Presbyterians. I understand that in some quarters, in some places, there is pressure brought to bear on individuals, congregations, to deny the fact, or at least to cover it up, that they are Orthodox Presbyterians. You might find out about that if you turn to the back of the brochure and you read the very, very, very small print. So we are challenged with respect to honesty, integrity, and I want to be perfectly forthright with you uh, this morning. That's why I have told you that I am an amateur, I'm not a bona fide, genuine church historian, and oh, that the Orthodox Presbyterian Church had such a person as that. In the interests of honesty, I would like to tell you a little bit about myself and maybe encourage you to reflect about your own personal odyssey with respect to your ecclesiastical identity. Not only am I not a church historian, I'm not a purebred OPCer. I came into the Orthodox Presbyterian Church from the United Presbyterian Church USA. And my roots were actually in the old United Presbyterian Church, the UPCNA, United Presbyterian Church of North America. My family hails from the dissenting traditions in Scotland and in Ireland. On both sides, uh, I have uh, covenanter ancestors who revered uh, Rutherford and others. <laughs> my grandfather on my mother's side was a United Presbyterian minister of the old school, as that would be expressed in that denomination. He was an ardent postmillennialist. He had a great deal of interest in the relationship between church church and state and even studied political science at the University of Nebraska before he went into the ministry. He made a great impression upon his children, especially two of his daughters. One, my aunt, is a member of my congregation and some of you know her. The other, of course, is my mother, and uh, she has been especially devout throughout her life. 
so devout, in fact, that having given birth to six children, she has not let a day pass without praying for each of her children. Presently, every one of those children is a believer. As I said, my mother was and is especially devout. One thing that comes to my mind, particularly in this regard, was uh, when she sat us down in front of a television. I was 12 years old. And she asked us to watch as a family, the death of a church. The year was 1958. She loved the old United Presbyterian Church, and in 1958, that church was united with the PCUSA, the church out of which Machen came, the church that stands as the mother church of this denomination. My mother wept because of that merger, that union. She wept bitterly because she realized that truly an end had come. Her influence was great on me through my junior high years. I remember the... uh, accelerated pace at which I began to read the scriptures, to pray during those teenage years. My faith began to mature. I entered college. I studied English literature. I then uh, began to uh, give attention to the question of the ministry. My motives weren't the best. I had been raised in a 1,600-member United Presbyterian congregation, and when I thought of the ministry, that is what I had in mind. There's not much chance of me seeing a 1,600-member congregation in the OPC. I realize that, and therein lies a tale in itself. So I did uh, pursue my education from Geneva College to Westminster. I entered Westminster determined to remain in the United Presbyterian Church. And I did so for three years, but finally it became apparent to me that the men who had authority over me really, truly did not deserve my respect. And the church of which I was a part did not deserve my respect either, since at best it was ambiguous with regard to the nature of the Word of God, and at worst, it was downright heretical. So in 1970, I left the UPC, for the OPC, and under the ministry of Henry Corey, who was serving in Glenside at that time, I became a member of this denomination. As was uh, stated earlier by Roger, my first congregation was in southern New Jersey. It was not an Orthodox Presbyterian congregation. It was a church that had recently left the large mainline body, a church that had a remarkable history, in fact, one that dated back to 1680. And it was in that environment that my interest began to develop greatly in the history of the church and the history of the church in this country. I became the historian of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in 1980 by default, simply because those who were better equipped, more able, would not do it. They thought only a few years remained 
for the OPC. And therefore, why become historian and simply write the epitaph? <laughs> so I came to the position by default. I am an amateur at my task, and I say these things to you because I think it's important that you understand that I'm fully aware that there are those here that know aspects, dimensions of OP history better than I, and that the history of the OPC would be well served if you would come to me with your additions, your corrections, your deeper insights into what has happened in our history to this point. At the same time, I think it's important to say that uh, there is advantage to standing at a distance. Those who were part of the history of the events that have transpired thus far may have been too deeply involved to get that objective perspective on what was happening, what was transpiring. That's no put down. It's just a fact of life. And that's why we must wait a while in order to write histories. We have to get something of an historical distance from the events in order to treat them fairly and honestly. Well, thus far, my personal apologia, but I would also at this point like to issue a challenge and an appeal. I would judge that there are some here that have great ability, possibly some here whose professional lives are still ahead of them. There are young people here. I know how conferences go. Usually you wait to the end and you challenge people with regard to their faith and maybe even call for a decision. Well, I would like to issue a challenge to you especially to you young people. The church is desperately in need of competent historians. Those who are able and dedicated to their task. Those who are genuinely interested, genuinely committed to the project, to the enterprise. Have you thought about what you're going to do with your lives? Has the possibility presented itself to you that maybe your interest in history could be developed well for the service of Christ's church? There's a special task in this regard set before us. Most helpful to the church in the future would be concentration upon that enterprise that would draw together the considerations of the history of divine revelation, the history of redemption, draw together that history with the history of the church and see them at a glance. See them as part and parcel of the same fabric. Now, I can go beyond this specific focus in this challenge that I'm issuing here. In some respects, the church is facing a desperate situation. The need for church historians is great, but there's also a crying need for exegesis really good exegetes, theologians, 
profound theologians, competent theologians. Do you realize that right now within the conservative world there is not one, not one world-class theologian? Not one. There is no one of the likes of a Machen, of a Warfield, of a Van Til, of a Voss. Not one. Well, that challenge to you. As to the objective now, <clears throat> here is what I would like to do in the course of these lectures. I want to review important events in OP history against the background of certain biblical and church history considerations for the purpose of demonstrating that the Orthodox Presbyterian Church is, yes, a legitimate expression of Christ's church in our time with distinctive contributions to make to the church's self-understanding and mission. I'll repeat that. I know some of you are right like I do. <laughs> I want to review important events in OP history against the background of certain biblical and church history considerations for the purpose of demonstrating that the OPC is a legitimate expression of Christ's church with distinctive contributions to make to the church's self-understanding and mission. Now, there's a thesis that is uh, laid uh, within those lines that I'd like to draw out a little bit here. That I would have to make a statement like that, or I'd have to set that as my objective, may reflect something of the circumstance that we find ourselves in presently. You see if I were to give expression to that thesis that is laid between the lines here, it would come out something like this. The OPC is a Presbyterian anomaly. Now, I know that uh, sometimes the word anomaly su suggests that we're talking about something that is abnormal. <laughs> the OPC is uh, uh, a Presbyterian abnormality. Well, uh, a peculiar people. Is that <laughs> yeah, a peculiar people? Right? <laughs> but at the same time, we can say this, that the word anomaly suggests to us that there is something here, an entity, that simply does not fit with the ordinary expectation. Presbyterianism is hopelessly establishmentarian. Now, I hope to unpack that a bit as we go through our lectures. But the OPC has broken the mold. The OPC in God's providence, has broken the mold. You are different. You are different. Now, there's something else that needs to be said at this point. 
Many individuals, many congregations, many presbyteries are severely distressed, if not depressed, because of what has taken place over the last few years. Much of what has taken place <coughs> is merely the working out of our identity. It's painful, but necessary. And in this regard, I want you to know that though you maybe feel distressed and even depressed, your church is racked with pain. Your presbytery divided or straining. Friends, we've been here before. And you who are older know that, and you should not stop saying that to those of us who are younger. We've been here before. We've seen the ranks broken. We've seen the churches and the individuals go. We've seen the strain and the difficulty. We've been here before, and God brought us through. I might otherwise state my point at this juncture this way. <clears throat> there may not be as much reason to be embarrassed about your church, your ecclesiastical identity, as some have suggested to you. On the contrary, there may be every good reason to be rejoicing in your ecclesiastical heritage. A warning. This is no reason for godless pride or foolish complacency, nor is it meant to suggest to you that our hope is the message about the OPC. Our hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The message that the OPC proclaims. Well, <clears throat> that's the objective laid out for you. You have the outline of the lectures in the brochure that's been distributed. And now I'd like to race on and speak to you about certain foundations, certain biblical foundations, which I hope will go some way along the line of drawing together that redemptive history of which I spoke earlier and church history. An effort that is intended to draw together the temporal and eternal significance of the Church of Christ. I want to speak to you about history and about the Church. Church history, hey. <laughs> first of all, first of all, about history. I want you to consider its importance. I have a little article here that I brought with me, written by someone who was whipping off uh, a little ditty for the Saturday Review, I believe. He was talking about the fact that uh, <coughs> Californians don't care about history. They, 
only care about today, <laughs> what's happening right now. Well, it, it, that's not just a, a Californian problem. <laughs> History and its importance. <clears throat> Listen to what Gerhardus Voss has to say. When he speaks about the Bible and the Bible's primary category, it is certainly not without significance that God has embodied the contents of Revelation not in a dogmatic system, but in a book of history, the parallel to which in dramatic interest and simple eloquence is nowhere to be found. You may want to add to that another statement from Voss. The Bible is not a dogmatic handbook, but an historical book full of dramatic interest. Now, lest you think that that's merely this uh, Dutchman speaking who is heavily into atmospherics, <laughs> I want to... Uh, call your attention to a statement by J. Gresimachin, his famous 1915 lecture on history and faith. This is how he begins. The center and core of all the Bible is history. Everything else that the Bible contains is fitted in a historical framework and leads to an historical climax. The Bible is primarily a record of events. He says in another place, unlike other religions, the Christian religion is founded squarely upon a body of historical facts. More recently, Richard Gaffin has said this, the subject matter of biblical revelation is essentially historical. Just in the great variety of literary types that make up Scripture, law, prophecy, poetry, gospel, epistle, apocalypse, there is a common focus, and this focus is historical. That's the line that was taken from Old Princeton to Westminster. That was the commitment. And on the basis of that commitment, those who were astute in defending that position took their stand against rationalistic liberalism and irresponsible mystical evangelicalism. Isn't it interesting that out of that institution that has that as its history and foundation comes a statement like this now. Scripture does not belong exclusively to the historical genre. It includes a law code, a songbook, a collection of proverbs, a set of letters. Scripture is not merely or primarily a history. There is a major dysfunction going on here. Something radical has happened. The commitment is not the same anymore. The atmosphere in which you live is historical. From beginning to end of Revelation, you have the opening words, Genesis 1.1, a statement historically qualified, in the beginning God, and historical consideration. And how does Scripture end? Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. It has been contended that 
at the heart of the Reformation was the recovery of the historical dimension of faith. E. Harris Harbison, a Reformational scholar, saw the Reformation as a restoration of the dynamism and divine purpose of history, a grasp of that. For Calvin especially, history as full of a sense of destiny was revived. For both Luther and Calvin, salvation was related to the once-for-all-time historical events into contact with which believers were brought by faith. The Roman church said the sacrifice of Christ was as recent as the morning mass. Luther and Calvin saw the once-for-all character of the historical event. History at the center of the Reformation and certainly at the center of the profoundest grasp of the Reformed faith itself. How is it possible for us to be Reformed and not grasp this point? The doctrine of divine sovereignty, God's plan working itself out in history, together with the doctrine of the covenant, underscores the historic character of our faith, the context in which we operate. But what about, <clears throat> what about the biblical view of uh, history now? We had something of an introduction to it last night, for which I'm grateful. I, don't, I hope I can make... This is going to be bad, isn't it? Trouble with being left-handed. <laughs> There it is. <laughs> Simple. <laughs> I'm told by those that know that this is a line segment. <laughs> it has a beginning, it has an end. This is our traditional approach, understanding of the biblical approach to history. We draw a line midstream, and we uh, say that uh, prior, before this line, we have uh, God intruding in His revelation, His revelatory acts and words, His acts and words, and that uh, after this. Uh, we live in a period in which we appropriate and apply for ourselves that which was given uh, during the time of uh, God's revelatory activity. We move from creation to consummation. And then uh, there commences, after this, the age to come, uh, the glory uh, that has been uh, uh, reserved for us. Uh, with God forever. Well, that's the classical view, okay, of, of, of history. But I should probably have left that there for a little bit yet. Can you, uh, can you see any problems with that, uh, uh, that position? Any, any difficulties, any inadequacies to that, uh, to that position? The classical problem that is raised by this schema is that uh, it leaves you, that's you, not me, <laughs> it leaves you at a distance from uh, those redemptive events and acts, those redemptive words of God, somewhat, so that you are therefore compelled to uh, uh, take what is given back here and then bring it somehow into your circumstance and situation. 
right? That, that's one of the, the uh, inadequacies of, of this schema. Uh, the other inadequacy is that it leaves eschatology over here. Eschatology is a consideration of those things that happen here and uh, that which uh, will be transpiring uh, after uh, or when and after Christ returns. So that's, that's, the, that's the problem. Well, this is why I love Gerhardus Voss. All right? This is what we have because of the insights that Voss has had into the teachings of the New Testament, the Gospels and the Epistles, especially the Epistles of Paul. Here's the creation. Here is functionally the end of the revelatory period centering in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's the end. But what has happened in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? He has been exalted into the age to come. So, title that the age to come. Call this the present evil age, okay? So you have the two ages. This is one age. This is another. The present evil age, the age to come. Into the age to come. And he in glory, is now mediating the blessings of eternity to his people. And so, what is happening is we are brought into contact with those eternal blessings through what Christ has done and because of where Christ is presently in glory. We are brought into contact with them. So, in effect... We are, I'll draw the little man again. We are people with our heads in the clouds and our feet on the ground. <laughs> I know that you don't like that. <laughs> we are renewing our minds. Romans 12. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. It's as if it's an already accomplished fact. And not only that, by faith now we are made participants in the very acts of redemption itself. And we are drawn within the history of redemption, for the history of redemption includes everything from creation to consummation. You are a participant. You are not a spectator. The problem with the other view is there was a tendency to leave you as a spectator to what had transpired in another age. This means now that you historically, redemptively historically, are living in precisely the same age as Peter and John and Matthew and James. You are in the New Testament. The New Testament is about you. That's why you cannot read a gospel merely as a biography of Jesus. Those gospels were written in order that you might see your life in relationship to the one who is described there and your union with him. You are a participant in those events in a very real sense. Now, I was glad for the passage that was read last night from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6. The end of that chapter... It doesn't matter how far removed from the events of the Exodus that father is when he must instruct his child. He tells that child, this is what happened to me when I came out of Egypt. That's the way in which the Jewish father would explain the Passover to his children. This is what the Lord did for me when He brought me out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Do you understand how that matches up to what Paul is saying in the New Testament? When Christ died, I died. When Christ arose, I arose. 
When He ascended, I ascended with Him. When He sits in glory, I sit with Him. When He returns, I'll return with Him. Well, you can tell I get excited about this. Am I out of time? Good. Now you see, this also describes the struggle that the Christian has. Because the word, the reality that Paul gives to the age to come that characterizes that age is spirit. And the word that characterizes the present evil age, Paul gives to that age the word flesh. The flesh wars against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, and that's the way it is until here. When we then in our bodies will be raised and uh, conformed perfectly, completely to the image of Jesus Christ. Well, here's another statement from Voss, one of his greatest we know full well that we ourselves live just as much in the New Testament as did Peter, Paul, and John. Well, that's history. You're in it. You are a participant. What about the church? Quickly. I merely want to give to you a few rubrics, headings, under which to consider the church. The church as institution. The biblical image behind our consideration of the church as institution is the edifice that God himself is building that he establishes. In the Old Testament, the temple. In the New Testament, the church. I think a very helpful analysis of how this is uh, uh, brought into view uh, in the history of redemption is provided us by Meredith Klein. In his book, The Structure of Biblical Authority, He tells us we have the constitutive events of redemption. In the Old Testament, the Exodus itself, then you move to a period of charismatic explosion, a period uh, uh, that is characterized by spontaneity, an eruption of the Spirit's presence. But then you come to a period of establishment where things settle down, And uh, there is an edifice set at the center of things. And in the Old Testament, it's the temple which is being built. He says there's a perfect parallel to that in the New Testament. First, the constitutive historical events recorded for us in the Gospels. And then we have the explosion of charismatic gifts and expression, spontaneity, in effect, characterizing things. And then as you move on, Into the pastoral, for instance, there's the settling down. There is the building enterprise. The edifice takes shape. It's uh, wonderfully helpful. But it reminds you that behind phrases from Paul, like what we find in 1 Timothy 3.15, I write these things to to you that you might know how to behave yourself in the house of God, the church of the living God, which is the pillar and ground of church, Behind those words is not some sort of domestic imagery as if Paul was thinking about the house church per se and that the model for the church is the house. No, you see, what he has in mind is the temple. The church is the new temple of God. And it doesn't matter how humble it is. Can you imagine the situation in Ephesus? Down the street is the temple to Diana, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Where are the Christians meeting? Some hobble, maybe. (laughs) 
But where's the glory? Where's the glory to you? Are you self-conscious about your small assembly? Not enough people? Not an impressive enough building to satisfy you? We're talking about a glory along a completely different line. You must train your face to see it. It is a discipline for you. The church is as edifice, as establishment. That's not the only image. The church is also a wayfaring pilgrim. Your home isn't here. You're citizens of heaven. Here you have no abiding city. You're not setting down roots setting up shop for permanent dwelling here. That never was the intention. The epistle to the Hebrews makes this abundantly clear, doesn't it? That not only is the church edifice not only is the church a wayfaring pilgrim, the church is a suffering servant. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where you live along this line. Your life will be characterized by the truths and the realities of the life of your Savior, and you are being conformed to Him. Did He suffer? Will you not also suffer? It has been granted to you not only to believe, but to suffer for His sake. You are suffering servants in the midst of a world that does not understand and may not even care. Your end is crucifixion. But if you suffer with him, you will also be glorified with him. And finally, your body of Christ Let me ask you the question, <clears throat> where is the body of Christ? <clears throat> I love to ask this question in my communicants class because no one can give me the right answer. <laughs> where is the body of Christ? Reformed people ought to have this down pat. The body of Christ is at the right hand of God. <laughs> Yet, it is precisely with that phrase, body of Christ, that Paul repeatedly chooses to describe the church in the earth. There is a relationship between what is going on below and what is going on above. You are the body of Christ. <clears throat> and as such... <clears throat> as that body of Christ has been glorified, there is now superimposed upon your suffering, your anguish, your distress, even your depression, the glory of the one that you serve. And that is why you cannot allow yourself to be given over to despair.
This provides for us now <clears throat> some foundation thought as we move into our consideration of the history of the church and history of our own church in their particulars. Let's pray to Our God, we ask that we might be full of the sense that the Apostle Paul spoke of, wherein he was able to see himself as so united to Christ that he died with him and was raised again with him and seated in the heavenly places. May we ourselves understand that we are participants in the great history of redemption and that we have been blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus our Lord. And though there are many reasons for us to be distressed and upset, may we take heart for superimposed upon this body of our suffering is the body of glory. We rejoice in the certainty of our triumph in and through our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.